Look in Colossians chapter 2 with me, please. And we'll begin our reading in verse 10. And we've been here for several weeks now. Um, in this por- not this specific portion of the text, but leading up to this point in, in verse 10 now for a few weeks we've mentioned it. We are going to begin our reading again there in verse 10 of chapter 2. Paul writes, And ye are complete in him, which is the head above, of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also... He arisen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to gather here with your people. Thank you for the body of Christ that you have called out, sanctified to yourself. Lord, may we live our lives accordingly as people who have received Christ. May we walk accordingly therein, that same truth, that same grace, that same love, and Lord, submission unto you. May that be present in each of our lives, Lord, as we walk with you and continue to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the privilege it is to to meet again with this body of believers, and Lord, we do pray that you'll use the Word of God in each of our hearts and lives by the power and working of your Spirit. Continue to mature us in the faith, Lord. Root us and ground us in your truth, that we may be equipped and prepared as we go out into a world of spiritual darkness and and chaos, Lord, and a world that's in such desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that we might be bold and confident in the gospel, as was Paul even exemplified throughout uh, this letter. And we pray, Lord, that all of this, as it is accomplished, that it will be to your glory and to your honor, and Lord, that uh, your, the gospel will continue to go forth, and the believers uh, will continue to grow in fellowship and in the uh, foundational truths of Christ, our Savior, who is all-sufficient. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and be seated. Within the previous verses of this chapter, Paul provided the warning for the Colossian church, as we've seen in previous studies, to beware And Paul's warning to beware that we have seen is a call for the church to see or to see to it. And so Paul's warning, as we've seen over the past, uh, last week, for for instance, we saw that Paul literally stated that they were to beware in verse 8, to see to it that you are not distracted from Christ. Then in verse 9, Paul says, see to it or beware that you not overlook the importance of Christ. And then in verses 10 through 12, Paul writes and states that they, we are to, or the Colossian believers were to see to it, as we should also, that you not neglect your privilege in Christ. So in other words, Paul is exhorting the church when he says see to it or see or beware, that they were to give their attention to these matters and to intentionally fix their focus and as well their devotion was to be set on Christ and Christ alone. Last week within our study, we examined verse 10 in which Paul declared, and... Uh, you're complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. And so we began by looking at this uh, logical connective conjunction, the, the word and that is used here and its significance in joining uh, these, this statement in verse 10 to the previous truth within verse 9. Uh, and we see in verse 9, Paul wrote, for in him 
dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now remember again, uh, just not to belabor the point, but I do want to make mention that in the face of Gnosticism coming into the church, creeping into the church, it, it was totally uh, marginalizing the importance of Christ altogether, that God would manifest himself in the flesh through his son, that the word became flesh. And so this idea, you know, that we could, that man could, could cultivate a relationship with God, become, uh, have a knowledge of God, that gnosis, if you will, of God uh, through some special revelation, some special knowledge, rather than the physical manifestation of his son in the flesh. And so Paul is combating that in, in all of these statements. He is reminding these Colossian believers of the truth of the preeminence, the lordship, the significance of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, in the flesh, and, he says. So connecting to that truth, and, he goes on to state in verse 10, ye are complete in him. And Paul's statement, as we saw last week, is that all of those who are believers in Jesus Christ were made complete at the moment of salvation, remain complete in him, in Christ, and continue to realize this fulfillment, this com- that they are made, we are made complete in him. So we realize this fulfillment in Christ. Then he goes on to state Christ being the head of all principality and power. So in this statement, really Paul is, is declaring the qualification for Christ in the flesh to make us complete. It is in Christ, as he say, states in verse 9, in which we see the fullness of the Godhead manifested in the flesh. And it's in this Christ then that we find fulfillment and we find purpose. So within our study of the next five verses of this text, I mentioned this last week in, in, conclude, in concluding the, the uh, time of our study, Paul explained how we have been made complete in Christ, the manner in which this has come into being. And then in verses 16 through 23, Paul provided yet another exhortation for the Colossian church to not turn their attention away from the Lord Jesus Christ. So this cannot be overstated. Paul has said this now many times and continues to do so. So in verse 12, Paul makes a statement which is at the core of the truth Paul has stated in these verses. Look at verse 12 with me. He said, Ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. So he says, This is the operation of God by which we are risen with him. And the noun operation, it literally means working. So Paul is saying that the Colossian believers have been raised through the faith of the working of God or the work of God in Christ. And more specifically, Paul is stating that the same power of God which raised Jesus from the dead, as Paul declared in his epistle to the church at Ephesus, when he prayed for them to grow in the knowledge of Christ and that they might know, he states, this truth of the knowledge of Christ and the power of God which raised Jesus from the dead. This is the same power of the working of God in our lives, raising us from the dead, spirit, from spiritual death to spiritual life. In Ephesians 1, 19-23, Paul says that you might know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, and power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him 
that filleth all in all. So here in Ephesians, again, which is a, a clearly a, a sister book to, to Colossians, and, and the same truths are stated, some in more detail in one than the other, but here he states the same truth he is stating in this verse uh, of Colossians chapter 2 and verse, uh, verse 12 and, and so on. And he states here in chapter 1 of 19 through 23 in Ephesians, as we've just read, that it's the greatness of God's power to us or to those who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which raised Christ, which he wrought, which he worked in Christ, in the flesh, the physical body of Jesus, in raising him from the dead and setting him in the glorified body at his own right hand. And then Paul goes on to explain in Ephesians here, as we've just read, that he's put him over, he's over all principality and power, and he's the head of his church. And he goes on to say, which is his body, the church, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily in the flesh. He is the fullness uh, that filleth all in all. And so this morning, we continue understanding these truths and again the relationship between Colossians and Ephesians in these truths that Paul states and benefiting one from the other in our study of each. We see that there, we want to spend our time in examination of Paul's explanation of how we've been made complete or how we've been fulfilled in Christ. Because remember, when Paul says, you are made complete in him, he is stating a, a, present, a present condition, the present circumstance, that we are complete now, presently in him. But it also, because of the, the syntax of the statement, the structure of the grammar that is used in this sentence or in this statement, it also speaks of that which a work completed in the past that has produced a present state of being right now in this moment. And so when you are completing him, it's done. It's been completed that we are fulfilled in Christ, but yet it continues to be revealed in our lives of how we are made complete in Christ. We begin to realize more so as we grow and mature in the faith, the realization of being fulfilled in Christ. And so let me say it to you like this. As grateful as I am, let me just pause for a moment, interject this. As grateful as I am, for the moment of salvation and the simplicity of the gospel and the simplicity of salvation, God using his truth to pierce our hearts and not requiring anything of us other than absolute submitting ourselves to him and who he is and his lordship, that he is Lord, that he is Savior, and that we are in desperate need of him. And this is our salvation as, as man comes to that place, which only happens by the working of God's spirit. But as man comes to that place, you see there's a simplicity to the to the gospel. The gospel is not complicated, but hear me, the gospel is very complex. It is not complicated, but there is much to this. And so at the moment of salvation, you know, even being raised in church and heard preaching my whole life up to that point and still do and, and have, and at that point of salvation, of the new birth, when I came to faith in Christ, I didn't understand all that I do now. I didn't realize what I understand and realize now. All I knew is that I was sinful. I was in desperation, uh, desperate need and in desperation of salvation and that God had provided Christ, the Savior who died, that I might be made, uh, uh, brought to him and reconciled to him. And, and really, I didn't even think of it all in that manner. What I really thought of was this. I'm going to perish. I'm going to die and I'm going to go to hell and I don't want to, and I am miserable, and I'm under conviction of my sin, and I need salvation. That's what I really thought as a 12-year-old boy. But now I understand 
can articulate it, of course, much differently now, having grown in the faith and matured in understanding the complexity of this salvation that has been provided for me. And I say all that just to simply say this. I am so grateful that now I understand so much more so of the complexity of the gospel and the salvation provided me in Christ than I did at that moment at 12 years old when all I knew was I was perishing and I needed deliverance. There is a a joy to growing and maturing in the faith and coming to a realization of the truth of the depths of the riches of this redemptive work of God, the operation of God, the working of God in Christ in us and on our behalf. And so there is a question that must be asked when Paul makes a statement, and ye are complete in him, I believe it should cause us to question, how is it that we are fulfilled in Christ? How is it that he is our fulfillment? And Paul goes on to explain this to us in the following verses. He really does. In verses 11 through 15, he literally provides us the explanation of how we are made complete in him. Notice what he says. First, in verse 10, he had said, in year complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. And he goes on in verses 11 and 12 and states that we are made complete through the Spirit of Christ. Now, the word spirit is not even used in this text, but that's irrelevant to the point of the truth of what Paul is saying. Look at verses 11 and 12, and notice verse 10. It ends in a colon, or with a colon, which means the following verse, again, is an explanation of the previous truth stated in verse 10. So he goes on, you're complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, and then he explains what that means. In whom? This is how it's happened. This is how this has, has been worked of God. In whom? In Christ. Also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him, Jesus, from the dead. Verse 11 of this passage is a significant verse. And and this verse, the reason I say that, all, all Scripture, of course, has this importance, but this is significant in relation to even as we view uh, the covenant working of God and, and uh, in the new covenant God's working and, and establishing that covenant between God and himself, um, his son, and then we are the benefactors of that covenant, of course. And in verse 11, it's significant because this verse explains something to us that other brethren, that I believe are genuine brethren, have failed to see for whatever reason and, 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 and even very, very scholarly, intelligent Bible students who tend to not see this truth, and so I think it's important that we look at it for just a moment at least. This verse explains something of profound importance, and that is that the circumcision, which was the token of the Abrahamic covenant, remember God had had called Abraham out, God made a covenant with Abraham, and then after all this he says this is the token, of course, and that uh, at, you know, at the eighth day there was circumcision all the males that were of his lineage, of his seed line. And it helps us understand that this circumcision of the Abrahamic covenant was only a shadow of the true token of the new covenant. The new covenant, what is the to- every, every actual covenant that has, God has made has a token. And I'm not going to go through all of these. We could look at all of them. I've done this before. But let me give you an example, for instance. When you look at... Uh, Noahic covenant. What is the token of the Noahic covenant? The rainbow, right? God sets a bow and this is a sign unto you. This is the token of my covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. What is the token? Circumcision, right? 
You look at, uh, like, for instance, the uh, uh, the covenant, uh, the Palestinian covenant, if you will. It's the land as the token itself. Okay, uh, so you look at all of these, uh, all of these these covenants that were made. Even the Davidic covenant. How about that? You have, you have kingdom, right? You have all of these tokens that were associated with actual covenants that were made. So when you come to the is that of circumcision. Now in the new covenant, in the new covenant, what is the token? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that token. The earnest of the inheritance that is given unto us. The Holy Spirit indwells us, right? So that is the token. And here you find that when Paul makes this statement in verse 11, he is explaining to us that the Abrahamic covenant, which token was that of circumcision, was a shadow and figure of the true circumcision. So the circumcision in the old Abrahamic covenant does not translate, and some of you will follow me and some of you probably won't in what I'm about to say, but just bear with me, does not translate into baptism in the new covenant. This is the fulfillment of the shadow of the Abrahamic covenant in its token. We have the indwelling spirit within us rather than some outward show. Now, I say that for this reason. Because, and I don't want to, I do not want to get bogged down here, but I just want to mention a few things because obviously um, we do believe that one of the ordinances that God has left the church is that of baptism, right? We believe that, and we believe, obviously, as scripture I believe clearly teaches from the point of, of after Acts, you see this clearly, I think, from that point forward, but of that of believer's baptism, as it's been often referred to, or as a, one comes to faith in Christ, then they obviously are making an outward commitment, testimony, or testifying of the inward work of the grace of God, and now committing to walk in the newness of life, being raised, buried in his death, and raised in his life. And so that all ties together with this outward commitment and testimony of an inward work being done and saying, I will walk and follow after Christ, who is my Lord, who is my Savior. And then there are brethren, who are dear brothers as well, who um, embrace what is referred to as paedo-baptism, of course. And that comes out of covenant theology in which it's believed, of course, that if a, a child is born into a family um, of believers, that then they baptize that infant. Now, some people practice this for salvation, and that is absolutely heretical and, and adding to Christ. But then there are other brethren who do not practice it for salvation, but as an acknowledgement, if you will, this has to do with this child being born into a covenant family, a family of believers, if you will, and therefore the child still must come to faith in Christ or either they're going to reject the faith, but yet that is a, a sign of, of uh, if you will, of that family believing that this is a covenant working of God and so on and so forth. So that being said, I still do not agree with that personally, obviously, and biblically, and, I, and that's why I said that I think there's a misunderstanding here of what Paul is saying in verse 11 of Colossians chapter 2, because Paul here says, look again with me, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is no, in no way talking about an outward baptism of any sort, whether it be infant baptism or whether it be believer's baptism. You are not putting off the filth of your flesh and sinful nature by baptism. It never has been, never will be. That is not what cleanses, that is not what purifies, that's not what purges. But what is it that does purge us? It's Christ and his sacrifice and his offering, God's offering on our behalf. But notice, it is the Spirit of God within us that does this working and operation to separate, to, to separate that, that sinful fleshly desire that controlled us, now giving us victory over that 
through the working of his spirit within us. This is a circumcision not made by hands. This is not an outward working at all. It is the inward presence of God's spirit and his inward working of salvation that is taking place. And anytime you look throughout the Old Testament, to tie this together before we move on, anytime you look throughout the Old Testament, you'll find when there are shadows or types, that those shadows and types, if they are truly shadows and types, are clearly defined to be such or explained to be such within the New Testament. Again, for instance, when you look at uh, the brazen serpent in the Old Testament with the wandering of the children of Israel, and remember that God told Moses to make a serpent of brass, to raise it on a pole, and then the people were to look upon it and be healed from the serpents. And then Jesus says in John 3, if you recall, when talking to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's a true type. He's saying, as that took place, so this must take place. I must be lifted up, and that's what took place. And there's so much more to that I don't have time to dig into or delve into today, but that is such an interesting type when you see how it connects. Um, I'll, I'll spark your interest maybe a little bit here, and we'll move on. But if you think with me, for instance, how that um, the serpent was the, the punishment of the sin of the people, remember? God sent the, the serpents, and they were biting the people because of their rebellion and their sin and murmurings and such. And then God tells Moses to raise a serpent up of brass and to, for people to look upon that serpent of brass, and in doing so, then they would be cured or healed from their problem. So then you say, well, how does that, how does that connect with Christ? Because in Scripture, you know, of course, in the Old Testament, in Genesis, Satan appeared, what, as a serpent, did he not? So Satan comes, and here he is as a serpent, and, and, and tempts Eve. So how is it that Jesus now could be, how could that type even connect well, let me just give you this and we'll move on. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is not literally sin, that's not what's being said, but he is the cure, the judgment of God and his wrath being poured out upon his son, treating him as though he were the sinner, so that we might receive the, the salvation and redemption. And so, you see, types in the Old Testament are clearly defined and, and distinguished within the New Testament. Many times people try to make types out of Old Testament situations that are not true types and they fall apart. But when you find a genuine type that is being referenced or shadowing, it will be explained in the New Testament, such as Leviticus and Hebrews, uh, one of the greatest examples of that probably in all of Scripture. And so you see that this is the case. So when you come to this verse, verse 11, and I don't want to bog down any more here, but when it says, "...in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ," Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you're risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. In other words, the new covenant in which the Holy Spirit dwells within the believer through redemption provided by God in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the true circumcision. This is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic. This is the fulfillment. And to prove that further, in Galatians chapter 3, if you recall, Genesis 12, 3, God says to Abraham, to Abraham, I cannot overemphasize this truth. God says to Abraham, in these shall all families that are to be blessed. He says, I will bless them that bless you. I will curse them that curse you. He said that to Abraham, to the man Abraham, okay? And then he talks about the families, of course, being blessed through Abraham's seed. But in Galatians 3, it's clearly defined. Because in Galatians 3, it says that God, knowing he would redeem the heathen, Preach the gospel afore unto Abraham. In fact, let's just turn there. I'll just turn there. We'll read this portion of the, of the scripture. Um, I'm going to not read the entire passage, but you'll see the context here clearly. 
He starts off verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you? He goes on and he says, let's see. He says in verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. It is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That the blessing of God might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So here, the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, receiving the promise of the Spirit. What is the promise of the Spirit? This is a token of that inheritance. Now look at what he says. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He said not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. This is singular seed. So all the promises of God to Abraham, you know where they're fulfilled? In Christ. The promises were made to whom? To Christ. And they are fulfilled in Christ. And that is so important for you to recognize. Now, he had also said that he preached the gospel. Here it is, verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached the gospel unto Abraham, saying, And these shall all nations be blessed. Well, what is the fulfillment of that promise? That Christ would come through the lineage of Abraham and the whole world, including the Gentiles, would receive the blessing given to Abraham through Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham. This is the connection. And so the circumcision, which Paul speaks of in chapter 2 of Colossians in verse 11, is a circumcision not made by hands, but by the Spirit of God, the promise of the Spirit receiving that, Galatians 3, the promise of the Spirit who now purges us, cleanses us, separates us from our condemned sinful nature. Now, when I say separates us, we still have a sinful nature, but we are no longer under its control. Now it is a sinful nature in contrast to the spiritual nature of God's Spirit dwelling within us. And so there is a distinction now that did not exist. Prior to redemption, we had one nature, right? What was our nature? Sinful nature. As a believer, we don't just have a sinful nature. There is now a separation that's taken place. God has given us his spirit. We have a spiritual nature desiring, hungering after righteousness while still contending with a sinful nature, but not under its control. We've been set free from sin. We're not under the power of sin. It doesn't say we don't sin, but we are not under the power and we of sin and we are set free from that sin. And so this verse explains, again, that this was only a shadow. The Abrahamic circumcision was only a shadow of the true token of the new covenant. Now, the Judaizers falsely claimed that the circumcision of the flesh was a necessity for salvation, as the apostles discussed at the council in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15, verse 1, we won't read the entire passage. I'm going to skip through some of it for sake of time. But chapter 15, verse 1, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Now they're talking about the law. This is the Abrahamic covenant, but it's the law of Moses that they be circumcised as such. And he's saying, except that be the case, then, of course, you cannot be saved. Acts 15, 5. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Here we have it again. Then chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, and bear them witness, 
giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Do you all see that? Here's what he's saying. Peter explains that the council of Jerusalem among the apostles and those who would debate such matters, he says, listen, you're wanting to put a bondage, he goes on to say, you're wanting to put a bondage upon the believer, Gentile, that even our fathers could not bear and keep. And he said, no, there's no difference between us and them. But what is the, why is there no difference? It's not because of a fleshly, physical circumcision. No, it's because of the purifying of the hearts by faith, which is the working of the Spirit, which Paul refers to in chapter 2 of Colossians and verse 11 as the circumcision not made with men's hands. So the whole point is this. It is by the Spirit of Christ, this inward working, this inward spiritual circumcision in which we have now been given the Spirit of God through the Spirit of Christ Himself living and dwelling in us through His sacrifice that we are made complete. This is His working in our lives. Peter declared in Acts 15.9, Paul further explains it in this text. While physical circumcision is not necessary for salvation, spiritual circumcision, which is performed by the Spirit of God, hear me closely, please. Spiritual circumcision is not necessary for salvation. Spiritual circumcision is salvation. It's what it is. Physical circumcision was never salvation. Spiritual circumcision is that salvation. It's not something done for salvation. It's not something done in addition to salvation. If you have been purified, if you have been purged, if the Spirit of God dwells within your life, in your being, you are born again. You are saved. Paul said in Romans 8 9, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. Well, guess what that means? The flip side of that is if you have the Spirit of Christ, then you are his. And it's his Spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father, right? It's his Spirit dwelling within us. We belong to him. And so this is so important to see because the Old Testament Abrahamic covenant with that token of circumcision is no different than the offerings and the sacrifices which never purified, but it is Christ who is the sacrifice that is acceptable unto God, and it is the working, the operation of God, the working of God in our hearts and lives by Christ, by His Spirit, that we are cleansed, that we are purified, that we are redeemed. It is this operation of, or working of God which Paul speaks of when referencing God's work or putting off the body of the flesh through our identity in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. It is in Christ that we are made complete. For Jesus fulfilled the law of God. Matthew five seventeen. Jesus says to those who would question and make statements concerning these matters, not this specifically, but just himself and the law and Christ in relation to the law. He says, think not that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. He is the fulfillment of the righteousness of God. He's the personification of the righteousness of God. And we are complete and fulfilled in him. Number two, we are made complete through the forgiveness of Christ. Look at Paul goes on to teach us in verses 13 and 14. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, there it is, dead in sins, uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. 
We live in a day in which it is not uncommon to hear people promote the idea of self-forgiveness. Many will claim that it is important for you to forgive yourself for all your mistakes or all your missteps. However, let me say to you, you never find fulfillment in forgiving yourself. But we are fulfilled or made complete in the forgiveness of God in Christ. Verse 13 says, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. We were unregenerate, we were dead in our sins, yet in Christ we've been quickened together. God's forgiveness in Jesus is much more than an effort to move beyond our sins. Think of it like this for a moment. When people talk forgiving themselves, you know what they're really saying? I'm just trying to live with myself. I, I, I just want to be able to live with my past. I just want to be able to get beyond it or try to move beyond it so that I can continue to function uh, efficiently, effectively, or what have you. I just need to move beyond this. That is our idea of forgiving ourselves, which Scripture never teaches us that. It never tells us to do But yet God's forgiveness in Christ is much more than an effort to move beyond our sins. For it is God's provision in Christ by which our sins are blotted out or expunged. And the statement blotting out, it literally means to wipe out or to cancel. It's recorded that in ancient times that wax tablets were used in writing in which there was a pointed stylus that, as a pencil or such that would write, be able to write in that and, and carve it out and make the uh, documents as they would. And the stylus also, though, had a flat end on it as well as a pointed end. And when a debt was canceled, the flat end of that stylus or pen or pencil, if you will, for our understanding, was used to smear out or to cancel or to wipe out the debt. You talk about wipe, debt being wiped away or wiped out or canceled. Well, if the writing was in this wax tablet and you take the other end, the flat end, and you start pulling and dragging across there, it's gone. It's, it cannot be it's no longer intelligible. You no longer can actually see and discern what this was or, or who owed what or what the situation was. And Paul declares in this verse that God the Father nailed to the cross all of our trespasses or all of our sin and wiped it out through his sacrifice. Ephesians 4.32, Paul declared that we are forgiven by God for Christ's sake. He says, and be ye kind one to another, that this should be reciprocated through us. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Isaiah prophesied of God's forgiveness through the sufferings of Christ. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Isaiah wrote, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep are gone astray. We have <clears throat> turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. God blotted out, wiped out, nailed to the cross in Christ all of our debt, all of our sin. So we are made complete. We are fulfilled in the forgiveness of Jesus. Listen, you know what? It, it, it is good to forgive, and we should forgive. And Scripture teaches us that we are to forgive as we've been forgiven. And it's been well stated priorly or prior times, it's been well stated previously that, that it is important that we recognize that no one could ever do us as wrongly as we have done God. No one could ever offend us as we've offended God. 
and yet God has forgiven us, and we are to reciprocate such forgiveness to others. And then people do talk a lot about forgiving themselves and how they should be, you know, we need to forgive ourselves, and you need to forgive yourself and just move on. But again, let me tell you, the forgiveness you need is not from another and not from yourself. You need the forgiveness of God in Christ. And it is in that forgiveness alone that you find fulfillment. Period. Then third, we are made complete through the triumph of Christ. And we sang about this this morning, interestingly enough. Verse 15, and, have, have, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly triumphing, triumphing over them in it. The verb spoil means to disarm. And the statement made a show of them openly, it means disgrace boldly with confidence or disgrace plainly. So our Lord publicly triumphed over sin and all the powers of darkness on our behalf, that we might have victory through him. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, we read, Now thanks be unto God, which cause, always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. 1 Corinthians 15.55-57, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As these verses explain to us, Jesus did not have to gain victory over death, hell, and the grave for himself. Many times people have presented this as though Jesus, he had to gain the victory over death, hell, and the grave. No, he didn't have to do anything. In fact, let me say it to you like this. Had he not already been victor, he could have never gained the victory. So it's not that he gains victory on his own behalf. No, he came in the flesh because of our sinful flesh. He died under the wrath of God because we were under the wrath of God. He raised victoriously uh, by the Father and sits now at the right hand of God because we needed intercession. He was already in fellowship with the Father. Perfect fellowship, perfect union. He was in perfect power. Follow me. He did not have to come to gain some uh, proposed victory for himself. He came to gain victory for us that we could not gain. And so we triumph, we are made complete in his triumph because he triumphed on our behalf. Death, he could not be holding of death, the scripture says, why? You know why he could not be holding of death? Because he is life. He is the very source of life, the giver of life. He is life itself. So death could not hold him, but he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross for us on our behalf, that we might be risen with him. So Christ humbled himself, gained victory over death, hell, and the grave, not for himself, but he suffered the pain and shame of the cross to give us the victory that we could never gain ourselves. And he triumphed. He disarmed, having spoiled principalities and powers. Do you understand what he's saying here? He disarmed the power of sin, the power of death, the power of hell, the power of the grave. He disarmed it. He took away all of its power for all of those who've been made victors in him. So sin no longer has power over us. We do not fear death, hell, and the grave. Death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. He disarmed all of that and gave us the victory. We triumphed in him. We are made complete in his triumph. We are complete in Christ. It is through his spirit. It is through his forgiveness. It is through his triumph or his victory that we find fulfillment. Look, Forgive yourselves all you will, but you will not be fulfilled in that. 
Do your best to avoid death all you will, and you will never find fulfillment in that. Do your, do your best to gain your way the best you can, but you'll never find fulfillment in that. However, do your best to live as righteously as you can, and you'll never find fulfillment in that either. But it is in His Spirit, it is in His forgiveness, it is in His triumph that we are fulfilled. We can find contentment in Christ. He gives and provides contentment. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Christ is, and we are fulfilled in His fullness by the operation or by the working of God. I told you, the gospel is simple. There's simplicity to salvation, but oh, though it's not complicated, it sure is complex. And there's great complexity to this operation operation of God, this working of God in our lives. And we should rejoice in such, for we have fulfillment in Christ. Let's stand together in prayer. Father, we thank you. Again, the word of God that shows us the revealed Christ.